We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST and make sure to subscribe wherever you download your, your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by Mike Edwards of Project Exodus Relief. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Thanks for having me on. First of all, tell us where people can find uh, more information about Project Exodus Relief. If you want to check out our website, you can go to blog.proexodusrelief.com and uh, check us out there. We have links to our uh, articles that we write and then also updates on rescues and then also donor information as well. If you want to click and uh, donate to our cause. Excellent. So blog.proexodusrelief.com. Now tell us um, a little bit about what you guys have been doing over the last several months um, and give us an update just on the progress of evacuating from Afghanistan. So we started off, uh, it was just me and a few of my buddies passing intel to each other, trying to get people out, you know, buddies of ours that we had that we personally trained overseas. And then after a while it grew, we, we saw that Things were taking a lot longer than we thought they would take. So we all started bringing it together, trying to pool all of our assets and our efforts to try to be more successful with the whole uh, evacuation effort. Things have been going pretty slow. It's taken a while. We, we weren't moving anybody for a while. We were just trying to protect them, keep them you know, out of the hands of the Taliban, keep them fed, keep them clothed and stuff like that. So we've been focusing heavily on that. And then recently we've started getting some traction, finally working through some aspects of the State Department. We've gotten some people manifested on some of those uh, aircraft as well. Got some of those people moved out. And then we also have some some other donors that are out there helping support um, moving some of our people on some private charters also. What do you think people don't understand? Um, you know, maybe members of the public who aren't following this issue really closely as it's faded from the the center of the media conversation. What would people maybe be, be surprised to learn about the ongoing um, efforts here? I think a lot of people would be surprised to understand there's a lot of these Afghan soft and, and soft is what we refer to them as uh, that are still stuck over there. These are our most loyal assets, the guys that worked with us hard throughout this entire war, uh, they're highly vetted, more vetted than your average American citizen, by the way. And these guys are being systematically hunted and killed every day. A lot of people like to ask, well, you know, these guys are so tough. Why can't they defend themselves? Well, the issue is they don't have any guns. We disarmed that entire country over the last 20 years. And so now without their military equipment, they don't have any weapons. So they're sitting at home with no way to defend themselves. The Taliban have access to all the weapons now. And here's another key point. Um, it's of strategic value that we get them out of there too, because if we want to try to take out or combat terrorism remotely, you know, via drone strikes or whatever, they need these guys for their intel that they provide on the ground. And they're just being killed. We, we've lost as many as 40 something of these guys in one day, or sorry, one week. Um, so they're, they're being killed systematically. We're trying to uh, rescue them as much as we possibly can. The American citizens, LPRs and stuff like that, they're going to get out of there. We're slowly getting them trickled out the last little bits of them. But these Afghan soft are very important to us. And we, we've got to rescue these guys or we stand no chance of thwarting terrorism over there in the future. You mentioned the Taliban has the weapons now. Um, can you tell us more about maybe how the situation has changed on the ground since the, the botched evacuation in August? What has the Taliban takeover really looked like um, now that we have a couple of months in the rearview mirror? 
So it's kind of fragmented. The Taliban are kind of fragmented. There are there are faction that factions of the Taliban are actually being helpful to the U.S. government. Uh, to some of the people that are on the ground talking to them, they've actually protected some of our people as well, which a lot of people would be interested to find that out. Um, and they they will provide safe passage. I think they're trying to show themselves as, as legitimized. But there's other factions that are out there hunting down and killing people as well. Another big thing is ISIS-K and then the uh, Pakistani ISI kill squads that are out there. They're still maneuvering around and killing people on you know out in the remote areas. And a lot of times I think that's being portrayed as Taliban, you know, just as a generalized term. But there's still a lot of killing going on. The Taliban basically run the entire government. They have access to the airport. They're like the TSA at the airport. So far, we haven't seen them be um, really harsh to our people trying to fly out. It seems like they're just trying to make money off of this whole deal. And there's different groups out there that are probably paying them, giving bribes and stuff like that. We refrain from doing that stuff because we don't want to be supporting any type of terrorist you know, network, whether it be the Taliban or anything. Um, so, yeah, essentially, they control the entire country, but they are still fractured. They're still, there's elements of them fighting up in the Panjshir against the, uh, the National Resistance Front as well. And those guys were doing pretty good to stand up and fighting for their own country until Pakistan came in there and kind of wiped them out with some drone strikes. So that's essentially where we are. And to summarize it for you. Yeah, um, that is some of that actually is quite surprising. Um, although it's it's not surprising the Taliban wants to legitimize themselves sort of politically and uh, curry some favor. But uh, overall, that's a sort of sorry state of affairs. And can you tell us a little bit more about the strategic importance um, of rescuing some of these folks? You you got into that a bit um, a couple questions ago, but. What does that, what value does that have uh, strategically for the United States, apart from the sort of issue of, of fairness and justice and decency as a country? What value does that, that carry for us militarily? Well, essentially, if we don't want to put boots on the ground over there, then we have to use these people and, and fight through and with them. So the best way to do that would be to recover these people, recover their families, and then send them back over either under the U.S. military. That's the quickest way for them to earn their citizenship. Um, or under the intelligence communities and have them fight on our behalf and help clear their own country out. And they're willing to do that. They're wanting to do that. But if we just leave them over there like we currently are, they're just dying in, in huge numbers. And eventually we're going to run out of them. And this is a great asset that we created. It took you know 20 years of training these guys and building them up. Some of these guys have actually been to the United States through the Special Forces Qualification Course. And those guys are trained to train insurgent fighters. So the last thing we want these guys to do is all be killed for one. And then we don't want to chance them being put in a corner where their only option is then supporting the Taliban. And mm -hmm. all, most of the guys that we have are super, super loyal. Like almost all the guys we have are super loyal. They will never do that until we just leave them. So we're, we're talking to them every day, communicating with them, feeding them, keeping them safe. But at some point in time, if we can't get them out of there, we're all going to run out of money. We're going to run out of time. We're all doing this for free. And if our government doesn't help us get them out of there, like DOD, I'm sure probably has a plan for this. But we would like to communicate with them and say, hey, what's your plan? What's your actual stance on this? And how can we help out and get these people out of here? Because if we don't, then eventually we're going to run out of gas and run out of funding. And then they're going to have no other option except to just get killed, or if they're lucky enough and smart enough, maybe they can talk their way out by joining the Taliban. And we hope that's not the case.
I was actually just going to ask, this sounds like an enormously expensive undertaking, um, actually, you know, rescuing people from a, a hostile Middle Eastern country. What does this look like? What does the process look like? I'm sure you can't get into, um, you know, granular detail for uh, obvious reasons, but what does that process look like you being here in the States and, and trying to evacuate people from a hostile Middle Eastern country? So flights are one of the things that are really expensive. And right now, you can only get flights in if you're sanctioned through the Department of State from what I've seen. So we don't even have any control of our own flights. We're just trying to get people on other flights. So our biggest expenses right now is paying for food, winter clothing and stuff like that because it's extremely cold there. It's starting to get really harsh. Uh, electricity's cut off in most of the country. A lot of places didn't have electricity anyway. Um, and then the food supply is actually pretty short too. So we're, we're funding that. We're funding the safe houses. And, and you're talking on average around 70 to $100 per family per, per month um, to, to keep them up in a, in a safe house, sorry, per, per day to keep them up in a safe house. Some places, some of the other groups are, were spending as much as $10,000 a day to house hundreds of people that they had in safe houses. So that's one of the biggest expenses right now. And we have the ability to continue funding this for a while, but we, what we ultimately need to do is get these people out of there and as soon as we get them out of there and make them safe somewhere, then we can leverage them as assets to fight and clear out their own country of terrorism and also protect our homeland by keeping it off our shores, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Is it is it hard to have confidence in your intelligence um, about, for instance, safe houses, or are you pretty you're able to have a pretty good idea of what's going on on the ground through you know electronic communications and all of that stuff, or or is that actually quite difficult um, from being here in the states? Oh, we have a pretty good intelligence network over there. Most of all of our guys are seriously the cream of the crop. They're like the tier one. They're like the Delta Force, the SEAL Team Six type dudes of Afghanistan. And so that's what they did. They gathered intelligence. These guys are highly vetted. They're still working for us every single day. We're, we're having them go check on this, go check on that, go help this family get over here. They're, they're, they're helping a lot of these other non-military families out. Um, they're bringing them into safe houses for us. They're going out and procuring the safe houses um, and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's, it's definitely, uh, our intelligence is really good on the ground. Sorry, I lost track there for a second, but our intelligence is really good there on the ground and we have a pretty good grasp of what's going on. So, um, honestly, we have so much intelligence. We should be passing this off to the intelligence agencies. Um, and, and we'd be happy to, to link up with them and see how we could help them and facilitate them in the future as well. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because you hinted at it um, a couple of minutes ago. Has there? Are you disappointed in the lack of interest or coordination from official government channels? Is that what I was sort of picking up on? Have they been largely unresponsive? Yeah, definitely. We're definitely um, surprised at the lack of communication. Uh, we've tried to reach out in multiple angles through official channels, but it seems like, you know, you, you retire from the military, you have a, a top secret security clearance, you know, read on all these different programs and immediately when you retire nobody cares you're useless and now we find ourselves as civilians in a situation where we're controlling intelligence assets on the ground have logistics in the country to maneuver people around and all we want to do is communicate with our own government to make sure that they're aware of the capabilities that we have because i know that they understand that this is an issue so the biggest thing is where does dod stand how can we help them? How would they like to work with us? The same with the rest of the U.S. government, the Department of State. We have a lot of these operatives or you know, operators, whatever you want to call them, 
that are essentially Department of State type employees, uh, protective service guys, secret service type people, um, very highly trained, very highly vetted as well. And we need to communicate with the Department of State and figure out what they plan to do with these guys. I mean, nobody's talking to them except for us. Hmm. And tell us a little bit about your team. Um, who's involved in this project and, and in the day to day? And why do you think it's so important for them to be involved? So we've got a lot of uh, veterans, mainly veterans. Uh, we have we have a few civilians, too, that are you know good, loyal, hardworking people uh, tied into different intelligence networks and programs and stuff like that that help us out a lot. Um, we've had a lot of veterans that were kind of in a bad spot when they saw this whole thing happen. And then since coming on board with us, they've been super valuable and very helpful. Um, and it's kind of given them like a new, um, I guess, thing to focus on and kind of keep them motivated throughout, uh, you know, their life because, you know, th things are rough in our country right now and then seeing this happen, it makes it even worse. So we've got a bunch of soft guys, you know, special operations forces, uh, Rangers, special forces guys, Delta force guys, Navy seals, you name it. We've got a big conglomeration of those kind of people on our team. And we all work together. And most people, I'd say our full-time group of people is around 35 to 40, maybe 50 people working sometimes 20 hours a day, sometimes even more, 24 hours a day for multiple days on end when we're cranking out manifests, trying to get people on planes, trying to vet the manifest before we send them out. And there's a lot of times when we burn multiple days on end without sleep. And all these people are doing this for free. We take in the funding, but every single penny of that goes to res rescue efforts, protecting people, safe houses, and things like that. Nobody gets a paycheck out of this. So uh, they're very good, honorable people that, that America should be proud of for sure. This is amazing. And, and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Why is this uh, such an important project for you? And how did you um, end up you know, getting, getting it off the ground? So it started off with me and, like I said, a couple of my buddies just working together, trying to share intelligence. Um, I, you know, I retired from special operations. I was in the 75th Ranger Regiment, um, did 22 years there, also worked in other units and, and was in one of our more specialized units within the Ranger Regiment also. Um, I think all of the skills that I learned throughout my career and, and a lot of the other guys on the team, it set us up for this position. You know what I mean? Like we're doing God's work and the stuff that we're doing we were all set up for this to be here at this point in time to cover this gap until our government can get on board and help us out. I know that they've got things going on that they're working on, but we're just trying to patch that gap until, until they can come on board with us, help us out, link up. We're willing to talk. We want to help out um, and we want to get this over with so that we can go back to doing other things in our lives, you know, spending time with our families and stuff like that, rather than working 20 hours or more a day on something that we're not even getting paid to do, but we have to do it because one, it's critical for the security of our nation. And then not only that, these are people, these are human lives that we have to save. Back in the early 2000s, Blackberries revolutionized how we communicated, but it was not long before Steve Jobs and Apple thought they could outperform them with a phone of their own. In an all-new season of Business Wars, you'll hear about how Blackberries and iPhones battled for their shares of the emerging mobile phone market. It seems standard now, but Blackberry's ability to allow users to text and send emails was a major game-changer at the time. They were the first mobile devices that could sync work emails to a phone, so for the first time, people weren't chained to their desks. Now, as the gold standard, every power player from D.C. to New York City to Los Angeles had a BlackBerry. 
But just when they thought they had the market cornered, in 2007, Apple launched the iPhone. On Business Wars, iPhone versus BlackBerry, you'll hear how BlackBerry, the phone favored by presidents, Wall Street, and top government officials, spurred Apple to push the envelope by developing technology that would usher in the future of phones, putting the power of smartphones in the pockets of billions worldwide. Now, I still have a vintage BlackBerry that I like to you know, hold in my hand sometime just for old time's sake. But this story, the story that Business Wars iPhone versus BlackBerry is telling is one that we can't lose to history because there's so much important trends and important information embedded in that battle. So listen to Business Wars iPhone versus BlackBerry podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Yeah, and you, you mentioned this just a little bit ago that uh, for a lot of people, it was motivating to focus on this really uh, important project as they were watching something that probably engendered a lot of pessimism um, play out, which was the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan itself. Can you talk to us more about that, what it was like for many veterans and probably yourself included, watching that play out in August, uh, actually over the course of the entire summer? Um, what was that like? For me, at first, um, I, I didn't think anyone could do anything. It really messed up that situation that bad on accident. So I got involved and I started trying to help as much as I could. And it was extremely frustrating. We couldn't communicate with anyone. We couldn't, uh, we couldn't get anyone to help us. It was super confusing. And so then we tried to you know, bring it all together to work together and get this sorted out. But for me personally, I think it was time to go from Afghanistan. We don't need to stay there forever. Honestly, that's just me personally. I, don't, I can't speak for the rest of the team, but I think it was time to go from there. But we should have probably done it in a different way. I mean, I'm not trying to judge anybody on how things were done. I know I would have done it a lot different of a way. You know what I mean? There's a, a lot of things I would have done differently. But at this point in time, we can't change the past. We just got to try to fix what's coming and try to make the future brighter. So that's our goal in this whole thing. One thing I've thought about a lot, and I'm curious for your insight on this, having uh, the experience and the network and the continuous daily experience that you do, what did, if anything, I don't want this to be a leading question, I'm genuinely curious, what do you think that effect that had on uh, morale in our, in, in our military? Do you think that did have a seriously sort of disillusioning effect, um, you know, when people were watching the, the scenes play out? Yeah, I do think, you know, from the people that I've talked to, a lot of people were really bummed out. Um, number one, by the fact that not that we were leaving Afghanistan. I don't think anybody really had a vested in, in that. Uh, but the fact that there's all these people just left stranded and, and that our Afghan allies, you know, these soft guys that we're, we're working with, these guys we fought with personally. A lot of us have personal relationships with these guys. And we, we've told them we would always get their back. We would always be on their side. We would never leave them behind. That's the biggest thing we always emphasize to them. And now we've essentially left them behind. So we, as you know, these private groups, that's our biggest goal is to let them know we haven't left you behind. There's just a little lag in communication. Right now, we're going to cover you until we can get everyone on board and get you out of there. So that's, I think, our biggest focus. And why do you think that's not coming more from official channels? Um, why do you think the military, um, in your experience, hasn't been more cooperative or collaborative with some of the private people who are doing this on their own? I, I honestly, 
have no clue. I can only assume that it has some sort of political implications. Maybe it's not honored uh, within the highest levels. I'm not sure. I haven't talked to anyone there. Um, I want to, and I'm trying to get tied in with some people within DOD, just to see what their official stance is. Cause I know there's a lot of people there that, that believe the same as, as us. There's a lot of active duty people uh, within the military that are working on these private efforts in their spare time, just so you know, by the way. So um, I know a lot of people share sentiments, uh, but I'm not sure what the official stance is. And I would like to know, I mean, we're, we're just here to help. We're not trying to get anyone's way. We're just trying to help these people. We, if we weren't here, all these people would be dead by now. All the people on our list would be either starved to death or the Taliban would have killed them by now. Um, or they would have felt completely hopeless. And who knows, maybe some of them would have joined the Taliban. We don't know. But we're here to keep that from happening and to keep them hope until we can finally get them out of the country. Did you see the withdrawal as sort of a function of incompetence or politics or a combination of both? Was it an incompetence maybe brought out by uh, political incentives or is there something going on with our military um, that, you know, it's it's there's maybe been a deterioration in the strategic uh, strength at the highest levels? Um, people who are making some of those, those decisions, whether it's Bagram, whatever it is, is there something to that at all? I don't think uh, I'm not sure what the exact deal was with that. Uh, I'll tell you, I don't believe it was incompetence. I believe it was done intentionally. I don't know why I, I can't get to the bottom of that, but I believe it was done intentionally. There's no way that you could mess things up in this and all these different aspects this bad. You couldn't do that on accident. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was intentional. I don't know why, but that's just my personal beliefs. Um, and, and it's, it's amazing to me because I know that our military leaders know better. I know that our governor, government officials <clears throat> know better. I'm just not sure what the reasoning is behind it. And who knows, maybe there's some big picture that I don't know, that I'm not aware of. I'm just some little retired guy on the ground. You know what I mean? I don't see the big strategic, you know, worldwide global view. Maybe there's something that I'm not aware of, but I know it wasn't done this way completely. It wasn't on accident for sure. Was, was any of your service in Afghanistan? Oh yeah, a lot of it was. I spent, I probably did nine or 10 of my deployments in Afghanistan. So probably half of, or, or almost half, well, probably more than that. Yeah, 10 or 11, maybe 12 actually in Afghanistan. I did probably more than half of my deployments in Afghanistan. So you're obviously deeply, deeply familiar with the country and uh, probably with its people as well. What can you tell us about Afghanistan, about Afghan people? It's um, it's a completely different part of the world. It's different than anywhere else I've ever been. Honestly, in certain places there, uh, they live like Jesus did back in the day. Mud huts, literally no electricity except for maybe a car battery and a couple of wires running over there plugged up to charge a, a cell phone. And that was the only technology they had for the most part was was cell phones um, back in the day. It's come a long, a long way since then. But um, but they're they're very loyal people. They're very helpful to, to their, uh, their friends and relatives. They, they, they work together, they take care of each other and they live the old school way. You know, they just, they don't have a lot of stuff to distract them from life. It's just, you know, getting through life, growing your own crops, raising your own animals and surviving with the exceptions of the bigger cities. Um, there are a lot of different tribal things that go on within Afghanistan that made it tough for a lot of us working with them, trying to figure out how to work, uh, amongst those different relationships they had and help get them to all work together. 
but the ones that, that worked with us for years and years and years, spent a lot of time alongside of us, they became extremely loyal to us. I mean, they became really Americanized is what we, we like to say. I mean, they wanted to lift weights like we lifted weights. They wanted to take the supplements like we took supplements. And they wanted to wear the same gear that we wore. And now they want to be an American. Now they want to be Americans now that their country has fallen. Uh, they want to come be Americans and then they want to go back and take their country back. So hmm. can you share any stories? I'm sure there have been incredible stories of uh, courage and bravery um, over the course of these these rescue operations. Um, and I'm sure over the course of your service as well. Do you have any particular stories that stand out um, that maybe also highlight how important this effort is? Well, for example, um, we know that the Taliban and at least maybe ISIS-K and some of those other organizations are definitely hunting these people. Uh, but like I said, we have them out, out there still gathering resources for us, getting heaters for safe houses, um, transferring money from one group to the next so that we can give this, mo this group money for, for food and for clothing and transfer this group money uh, for safe houses and funding, that kind of stuff. They're also gathering intelligence on routes, like, hey, are there Taliban on these routes? Are there Taliban on those routes? Uh, different things like that, ease of access to the airport. They're still giving us all these reports, and there's a lot more to it than that, but I don't really necessarily want to speak about it on here. But they're definitely willing to help us out, and these guys have never let us down. I mean, they've been more loyal to us in the last, excuse me, couple months than even over the last 20 years. I mean, we're their lifeline. And if, if we can just get them out of there, they would be very good assets to have in the future, for sure. Mm, I, I, I can only imagine. Um, and we're speaking on Thanksgiving week, of course. So I wanted to ask, um, you know, what what are you thankful for um, right now, having been, as you said, working 20 hour days um, and, you know, for free, basically in, in the service of this, this rescue operation, it's uh, undoubtedly been a long few months um, on your end. Uh, so, so looking back, um, what gratitude are, are you feeling right now? Well, I'm definitely thankful for the team of people that we have at Project Exodus Relief. I mean, we, from all walks of life, uh, people with various different backgrounds. We have PhDs. We have, we have uh, uh, people that are professors at, at colleges all over the country, around the, the D.C. area and stuff, too, that are working with us, writing articles and stuff like that. I'm just thankful to have such a great team that's willing to put in these hours uh, without this pay to try to achieve these goals. And I'm thankful that we got 62 people out just last week, and, and it's looking like we may have another 150 out this week. So uh, we're, we're just keeping our fingers crossed and praying as much as we can. But but I believe we're going to be successful. And, and I'm thankful that we have people willing to put forth this effort. Those those numbers are absolutely incredible. Um, how much I, I know the answer is a lot, but if you could tell us a little bit more about what work is, is left to be done, that would be super interesting. So we have about eighteen hundred more people on our manifest or on our, our list that we're trying to get out. Uh, right now, we're really focused on the American citizens, the green card holders, LPRs, and, and then our Afghan soft. We know that some of the soft guys that are undocumented, it's going to be like a longer fight, a longer mission to try to get them out. Um, but also continuing to build up with other efforts out there, um, like some of the other bigger groups like Task Force Pineapple and people like that, or groups like that. We've tied in with a lot of those guys, and they're super awesome people, too. They're doing the same thing we're doing. Some of them even better stuff in other aspects, but we're trying to pool all of our assets together to work together and get this thing done as efficiently and as, a, and as fast as we possibly can. 
As someone who served, what did the support of the public mean to you? What is it? What? What? How important was that to morale, and and how important was that to to keeping you going um, in some undoubtedly treacherous situations and tough times? It means a lot, and and I know we've seen a lot of support from our family members. Um, we've seen, you know, we we talk to them all the time. But it seems like the news media has kind of completely blocked this out or either lost focus in this. And, and it's been a struggle trying to keep this in the awareness of the, of the American people. Um, a lot of the stuff. Here's another thing that's a struggle. Uh, there's movie stars, you know, within our, our, our country that are getting people out more effectively than we are. People that yeah, may be slightly at risk, but they're not at a risk like these Afghan soft guys. Um, and they're not as valuable of an asset as these Afghan soft guys. Not as critical to strategic importance in the long term as these Afghan soft guys. But yet, you got the money, bing, bing, bing. You can dole it out, and you can get ever get anything you want done in this country, because it takes bribing lots of people that you wouldn't think would want bribes. Um, but that's what it takes. And we're not doing that. We're trying to do this above board as honest and perfectly legal as possible. And therefore it's been a lot longer, harder struggle for us. So that's where we're at at this point. Yeah. Uh, that's again, probably surprising to some people that there's an above board and a below board, I guess, if you can say way to do this um, and, and tell us why you're so focused on not offering the bribes. What is the importance of that um, for people in the public who, who might not understand that, how that process works and, and why it's relevant? Well, for one, we don't want to be um, associated with contributing to any type of terrorist organization. So giving bribes to the Taliban is something that we just can't do and we, we won't do. Um, but then just there's other way, there's other people that, that are taking bribes out there as well. And, and it's, I don't really want to go into depth on that kind of stuff because we're still trying to get to the bottom of it. Um, but we just want to get these people out. And honestly, we don't have the money to pay these bribes. These bribes are ridiculous in a lot of places. So what we do is we've been trying to work with other groups. And there are some groups out there that are doing this completely honest, too. And they have planes that are funded sitting on the ground. And they're trying to get the authorizations to get them out and fly them and to clear out the lily pads where uh, these people are going before they come to the United States. So what we've been doing is bartering a lot. We them with getting safe houses or we help them with getting food or we help them with ground passage to certain organizations certain certain areas um, and we facilitate a lot of stuff on the ground also share intelligence and therefore they give us a lot of seats so that's the biggest way that we've gotten on some of these fights even some of the ones that are paid for that the seats are paid for we just barter and see what we can do to help other people out and then get our seats that way because we're not funding our own aircraft right now because that seems to be halted um, but there are some aircraft that are being flown in over there and the seats, some of the, some of the price for some of these seats is extremely high. Mm -hmm. So we're just trying to barter as much as we can to get these seats and then keep our people safe. And we're spending uh, a decent amount of money on safe houses and food and clothing and wood and medical supplies. And, and we're doing medical stuff for people. We've, we've delivered multiple babies over there via C-section. One of my guys actually had a brand new baby this morning and we're, we're taking care of these people in, in ways that, uh, they don't have access to like we have connections to doctors on the ground. We have people that can advise them via the phone on medical stuff. We, we talk people through treating their own gunshot wounds when they get shot by the Taliban. These are the things that we're really working on uh, when we can't actually get the traction to move people via a plane.
Without journalists on the ground and um, American forces on the ground, it's been difficult, I think, for people to have insight into how badly the situation has deteriorated under the Taliban's control. What can you, what are you able to tell us, um, maybe particularly about upticks in violence? Um, some people said, you know, the Taliban was going to want to be diplomatic and they are going to want to legitimize themselves. So it won't be as bad as maybe you think it is. What can you tell us about what the situation looks like for Afghans right now? It's definitely nowhere near as good as it was the last 20 something years. Um, and they, the, the Taliban are out there persecuting uh, a lot of these people. So, but if, as long as they lay low and hide, it's not as bad as you would think a lot, you know, uh, Afghanistan became really Westernized. So in, in Kabul back, uh, you know, a few years ago, you would walk around and you would see women dressed like they do in, in California, basically that's just not accepted anymore. Um, if they kind of go back to the old school way, they can kind of go under the radar and, and get by for a while. But the key thing, these Afghan soft guys, a roster was given up with their information and their details on it. And the Taliban are actively hunting, not necessarily the Taliban, just the Taliban, but ISIS-K and those other elements are actively hunting these people, going door to door. That's who they're looking for. They're not looking for a girl that you know, wore short shorts, you know, a couple years ago. They're not looking for um, somebody who might have worked with the U.S. government. They're looking for these these bad to the bone special operations guys. They want to get rid of them quickly uh, before we can gather them all back up. So that's how it's changed. Uh, life is not like it used to be. You don't have the freedoms that you used to have. You, It was a lot like America in Kabul up until not too long ago. Since the fall, it's gone back to the way it was. The Taliban are super strict. They're, um, they, they've changed it significantly. And there is a lot of threat for these people. Uh, some of the groups that are being mentioned as being high threat aren't as much of a high threat as as as, as being said in the news, I should say. Um, but these Afghan soft guys, especially the higher level ones, are in a lot of threat of danger, and we and that's our biggest struggle: trying to keep them safe until we can get them out of there. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it has been interesting to watch this fade from the center of the media discourse um, as the situation maybe has gotten more boring from the perspective of the perspective of producers um, in New York City who are deciding what's on the daily docket. Um, can you tell us more about your frustrations as somebody who is trying to publicize these stories and your work so that more and more people um, are, are able to donate and to understand the situation? Can you tell us more about your frustration with media coverage? Yeah, it was it was hard to get traction at first. Now that we've kind of gotten some traction um, and in several different aspects, I'm sure it's going to be helpful. Keeping this in the media is definitely critical because I, I think it's been uh, just blocked out or, or I don't know, refused to be covered. It, it's definitely a complex situation and uh, it needs to stay in the media's focus. There's a lot of other stuff going on in the world to understand that uh, there's a lot of different distractions and there's a lot of legitimate issues going on. Um, but yeah, it's been frustrating, but I think we're getting the, the headway that we need. Yeah. And just to wrap things up, if there are people who are maybe still skeptical and who do want to put, you know, Afghanistan in the rearview mirror and say, you know, we're we're done with this. Um, what is your pitch as to why this is still so important um, as a focus of Americans um, who maybe are considering whether to, to donate um, and to give it their time and attention? What What is the argument for why, you know, skeptics should should care deeply about this? Well, you say get done with it. Uh, we want to be done with this, too. We wish it right. had been done two months ago. Um, but I, I think the biggest thing is our long-term future of, of the United States and the rest of the globe. Um, there, there is going to be 
a basically like a, a, a growing, uh, like a ground for, for these terrorists to come up and, and um, train and do whatever they need to do. And to take, to keep that from happening in the future, we need to vigorously and fast get these Afghan soft guys out of there and then leverage them as assets for us in the future. If not, we're going to be fighting a much more robust, much better trained, much better equipped uh, Taliban and Al-Qaeda and all than we've ever seen before. I mean, they literally have state-of-the-art equipment over there, and they are driving it around and using it, too. And, Mike, lastly, how can people uh, get involved and how can people help out? Well, we've got a Twitter page, and if somebody is interested in helping out, they can message us on the Twitter page and then we can talk to them and see how they want to contribute. Even if it's not financially, uh, we, we have other positions in places where people can help us out. So if they can message us there, uh, one of us will call them and talk to them and see how we can bring them into the team if they're willing to help out. Awesome. Well, the blog one more time is, or the website one more time is blog.proexodusrelief.com. Mike Mike Edwards of Project Exodus Relief. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us on this holiday week. Awesome. Thank you for having me. And it was good talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Again, the blog is blog.proexodusrelief.com. You have been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. (laughs) 